it changed a lot of things for me for a start now, probably because people really, really dug it and it got amazing press、mm. and so on. Uh, I've done actually my first ever album at the same time as this book, Revenge of the Sheepunks. So I, I, you definitely putting when Staubgold in、uh, France put out that、um, retrospective compilation. You know, it really shifted things for me. In a, more than I had even anticipated. For a start, it led to this book because this book, Revenge of the Sheepunks, because. They heard of me at the University of Texas because Pitchfork did an article, thirty-three revolutionary women punk、yeah. songs or some such. Pitchfork was throughout the entire process of that album coming out. Pitchfork was very kind to you. They, they were very supportive, yeah. yeah. And so they put my song "Private Armies," which was a sort of political song that really, really is relevant today, to a depressing extent, one could say. And they got me to write a little thing, and it was about two hundred words, two hundred and fifty words. I remember thinking, well, what can I possibly do? You know, what am I going to say? And then I thought I'd like to do something that would sort of energize and rally the troops. What were the parameters of the piece specifically? Oh well.、Just It was just because they were putting the song in the list. Yeah, and they, they told asked, you to write anything within、yeah, a relatively small. Exactly, exactly. So that's what happened, and then it filtered through to the University of Texas Press, and this woman there, Gianna Lamorte, she saw it, and apparently she cut it out or something, or printed it out and put it on her desk, and apparently people kept saying, "Oh, that's interesting." And then she called me and offered, said, "Would I be interested in exploring further?" These ideas about the connection between women and punk. I hadn't actually been thinking of doing that, you know. But then when she suggested it to me, I was like, "Oh, I probably really, really should," because I have a lot of thoughts, you know, and I've lived through quite a lot. I, I've seen this whole cycle, cycle after cycle, unfold, and、um, you know, I, I just, I felt like I felt about my Exodus book that、mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to have lived through certain things, and I should. Make sure that people knew that information if I could, if at all possible. So, and then they said, "Well, what angle did you want? Did I want to take?" So I went away and thought about it, and I realised, you know, a lot of people they're very quick to rush to judgment. Oh, punk is dead. Punk is castrated. Punk is a spent force. But I knew. That punk's most important aspect was as a liberating force for female artists. Because even if you look at the great punk icons, you know, say the Clash and the Sex Pistols, total respect. What were they doing? They were continuing a lineage.、Mm. Whereas what the women were doing, it is actually safe to say, was utterly unprecedented.、Yeah. And that's very unusual to say that anything on the planet is utterly unprecedented. But that. Wave of revolutionist female artists—they'd never seen their like before. The world had never seen their like before. And then they were silenced. And then the riot girls picked up the torch. And then a lot later, you know, an acknowledgement and you know, real synergy started to happen. I mean, I put in the book how, at a certain point, when the internet was young, we didn't have Facebook and all that. I was contacted by the、uh, European. Collective chicks on speed,、mm-hmm. who are very very active and sort of brilliant. I hadn't heard of them before, but they'd somehow heard of me. It was way before the record was reissued, and they were eager to make a, this connection. And they put out a compilation CD called Girl Monster, and that gathered a lot of scattered women's music. And it was the first time I saw 
a concerted effort to construct a her story. Then there was another CD, Sharon Signs to Cherry Red. Disclosure, I'm on both of them, but, you know, that's just the way it is. These were significant releases because it made me think again, I who'd lived through it, you know. And I describe in the book, like, I was already a rock writer when I went to some show. And there was a long-haired person in jeans playing the guitar, slashing out power chords and what have you. And I go to the front of the stage and I'm like, oh my goddess, it's a woman! And I was really shocked. You know, I had never (laughs) seen a woman play before. And I was already grown. I was already in my 20s. So you see how there really hasn't been a lot of it about. And there has, you know, so it's really the old Shakespeare's sister syndrome, isn't it? And look at the art world. It's the same mm-hmm. thing. Now women artists are just starting to get their due. Just like we're having a women's football team start now with a, you know. Yeah. So really women have been sort of, I mean, it's just a fact. You only have to look at it. We have been stomped on. Since the days of the goddess. This is fresh in my mind because I recently spoke to uh, a woman named Denise Kaufman. Do you know mm. her? She's in a band called Ace of Cups in San Francisco in the 60s. Oh. On all female rock bands. No, I mean, they, they actually. They are. I hadn't even heard of them. Yeah. Well, I'll, you see, we'll, we'll typical talk... of what I mean that yeah. they're sort of silenced and hidden. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, they had the problem from the standpoint of, you know, they were in San Francisco, so they were playing with the dead and they opened for Hendrix and all these people, but they weren't able to get signed. And they mm. had families, had kids, went on with their lives. And I think one of the big differences mm. here is that there was a critical mass. Like, there have been dribs and drabs, perhaps, of, of women playing yes. music. But mid to late 70s, early 80s, like, there was finally enough of them to start a movement. That's part of it. And part of it, shifting the zeitgeist, like, I do talk in the book about how, like, I have an interesting dialogue with Leslie Woods from the Au Pairs, mm. which is a fantastic band. And they were, they were political, and yet very, and still, and also very, very catchy. So she's an immigration lawyer now. And it's so interesting. I'm actually haunted by this conversation, this interview. And I would like to go back and discuss it with her again. Yeah. Because, you know, it takes a while to get a book out and it takes a while to write a book. So although this book is new, uh, I actually spoke to her, say, over two years ago. So at that time, she says to me, at the time they were doing this danceable pop relating to gender issues in many cases and gender equality. She said, we were just coming out of that time and just getting legislation whereby if a woman was beaten up by her husband, she had legal recourse. And that was like a year old, two years old. So... Everything was shifting. I have to be honest, like my big sister, Judy. Hello, Judy. Uh, <laughs> she's always going on me. Oh, you know, it's all right for you. But when I was your age as a yeah. teenager or in my early 20s, I, wa- I wasn't, wouldn't have been allowed to buy a house had I been able to. You had to get signed for by a husband or your father. So you see, if you look at it in the broader social context, you see why things are changing. Funny we should be talking about all this because I am just reading the autobiography of Goldie of Goldie and the Gingerbreads and I mention her in the book at that moment I hadn't really known that she had her own autobiography I so wish I'd read it then because I would have liked to quote it you know she just says straight up you know it was so hard to get the women musicians for Goldie and the Gingerbreads and she puts it in the context where just 
totally wasn't a done thing, you know, for women to do bands. I also note in the book that one of the things I learned while doing it over, over two years, uh, one of the engines is literally sisters. I mean, I have to say that for me, it was artists who were like sisters, like the Slits and then mm-hmm. Cherry and the Raincoats, you know, so sister, sistren, as we say from the Jamaican influence. But really, when you think about it, and a load of the high proportion of the bands in this book are actually sisters. Mm. Remember Hart, mm-hmm. the Millington, uh, uh, the Millingtons, Wilsons. the Wilsons. Yeah. Then there's Fanny, the Millingtons, and I, th- I think it w- there were so many challenges to being a woman doing music. I mean, whether you were an all-woman band or you were the one of one or two women in mm. a band, you know, that really to have a sister. You know, you have a primal relationship that's going to endure whether you're playing together or not. Built-in support that you have there. Voila. Um, Shown and Knife for Sisters. Mm-hmm. And um, the the group from Colombia, Fertil Miseria, who, uh, on, on whose note I conclude the book, I have to say they did amaze me. They amazed me so much. And it, it took a really long time to get to speak to them properly. It was a very, very long exchange over months. Partly, obviously, because I don't speak Spanish, despite my seven years of Latin. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of friends of mine, Eve Bluin, who I used to have the band Chantage with, and my friend uh, Zenia Cassidy, who's a Russian journalist who worked with Pussy Riot. Eve was actually on the show last time. She was... Oh, Eve, yes! She was Eve in the, was here, she was in the she? apartment. Yeah, it was just yeah, a no, fun Ev. coincidence. Where yeah, she was, was like, oh, I'll sit over here, I'll just... And then she slowly started ingratiating yes. herself into the no, conversation. Yes, Eve has moved away from the music, because otherwise she'd be singing with me now but yeah. she's just not that yeah. interested she's in another phase I suppose ultimately maybe I was the more musically driven of the duo one has one can only conclude but yeah we're still super tight in fact she's coming to hang out and stay here uh, in a couple of days so, yeah for a few days Colombia yeah so Ev and Xenia the Russian journalist helped me communicate with Fertil Mazzari, but that's what doing this book was like. It wasn't just like, da 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 da, let's call the PR. No, I went out and really, you know, researched globally women artists and, you know, listened to a lot, a lot, a lot of music because obviously I had to like the music. There is a playlist on Spotify mm-hmm. of the whole book. Each of the chapters have. Yeah, has a playlist. You know. I suppose because of this thing where I was annoyed at people seeing punk in a very territorial way, like, oh, if you weren't at CBGB's for two minutes, or <laughs> if you weren't at Ladbroke Grove under the Westway, my place, for two minutes, yeah. you know, then, you know, and, and to me, it always seemed, in addition, a way to diminish female creativity, because knowing that punk had opened the door for women in a totally different way than Goldie and the Gingerbreads had experienced all your friends in San Francisco. So I was like, yeah, lock us down again, will you? No, I want to show what my actually my gut told me, which is that punk was still freeing female artists around the world because I just sensed it, I knew it, and that's what the book proves it. When I found the people I was curious about and I tracked them down and I managed to speak to them. As I said, in the case of Fertil Miseria, it took months. It vindicated everything that my intuition had told me. My feminine? No, but yeah, really, everything <laughs> I thought was in fact correct. Anyway, Fertil Miseria, because I was always more interested in punk for its political usefulness. Mm-hmm. Musically, there was interesting things in New York, obviously, 
but the more political edge was from my cultural yeah. formation, you know, with rock against racism versus the National Front. All that conflict that is scarily relevant again now, mm. as you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really until I think hardcore came around that it became a, an overtly political movement in, in the America, United States. Yeah. yeah, certainly in New York, it was more. I sometimes it think art. it was more. Rea- yeah. yeah, more arty. I think it was more. Maybe I sometimes think, although I've had some Americans agree and some disagree with me, that in a way, even though there's a lot of denial about that, that it was in a way a reaction against having so narrowly escaped being drafted for mm. Vietnam. Because if you look at it, Vietnam ends at the time of glam as just as the punk thing is just about to start. So all those boys and all those bands, their elder brothers would have either gone to war or managed to get out of it, and they would have been next in line. Mm. There are not that many Vietnam vets in punk bands that I know of. Not that I'm aware of. Right. So you see what I mean? It's literally the next generation that just squeaked past and managed not to get, you know, come home in a bag like uh, Country Joe and the Fish used to say. You can point to Ramon's songs, I think, where Vietnam was addressed. That was a little bit of a piece of it. That's true. There was some residual there. That's true, actually. I always think of them as performance artists. I get the feeling it was either Johnny or Dee Dee who did have... A political... Well, some of them are Holocaust background like yeah. me, because I'm a child of Holocaust refugee mm. people. And some of them are like that. And some of them collected Nazi memorabilia, which is this weird duality yeah. that even I, you know, I sort of grapple with. Is it, a, is it to get a sense of control over those who try to decimate you? Or is it just some weird fetishistic SM kick? I just don't know. A number of years ago, I was in Cologne, Germany, and I ran into Francois Moulet and Art Spiegelman. And Art was giving a... They were doing a retrospective of his work. Obviously, his best-known work is Mouse. Mouse. So he deals heavily in the, the political. They did a slideshow, and after the Mohammed cartoons had come out, Ahmadinejad did a contest to do Holocaust denial cartoons which Art Spiegelman entered in because he's very tongue-in-cheek. And I watched a crowd of Germans, probably, you know, Gen X, maybe older millennials, laugh at these cartoons. And it was a very surreal experience, the relationship that they have with that horrible thing. I think the media generation, their equivalent of the boomers, carried all that guilt. Mm. And they're kind of grappling with how they deal with it to be in a city like cologne or berlin where there's reminders of it everywhere yeah it's a very complex relationship very complex because you know you can take the person out of germany and kick him out but they're still german i there's a bit of me that still feels german even though i've barely been there but i was invited to go and perform there last september at the berlin pop culture Hmm. fest i was staying in a hotel right where my grandmother had a little kosher restaurant on the alexanderplatz but it was also bombed you would never know you know and i mean i have to say it was fantastic to be invited back and i still resonate a lot with germany i'm jewish myself and so much of america's knowledge is tied to world war ii you know when we discussed germany and that was 70 years ago at this point it did take me kind of a little while to adjust and to try to navigate what that relationship was when you're walking down the streets of berlin and they've got the little plaques in front of all of the buildings of all of the people who were pulled out and sent to camps uh, anyway, sorry, let, we, we, we got... No, the, this is interesting. I mean, it's real. You yeah. know, we shouldn't de- deny it, the dialogue, you know. It, it, it's real. Um, but you feel that there's bands like the Ramones, that there was there's a piece of that 
uh, that left something residual from World War Two. Yeah, but I wish I'd understood it more when I was hanging out with them in their loft. They were I found them, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, we didn't have big, big, deep talks. Well, maybe that was yeah. my fault. So I only understood all this later. I mean, they're very intriguing, speaking as a punk professor. They had this thing about doing white music. You know about that. How, how do you that mean? was their aesthetic. White music. They were trying to make a thing. But are you? But they were Jewish. They yeah. can't really have been yeah. massive right-wingers. You know, but that, that was their thing. They were trying to make a music that was not grounded in the blues, like so much music is mm. grounded in the blues, isn't it? Yeah. To R&B. Absolutely. And on. Yeah. You know, and the blues, especially in America, but even in other places, you know, it's like become a foundation stone for pop, popular music. And they were trying to do something not rooted in the blues that was, quote, white, quote. It's interesting to hear that because you've got the feeling that so much of what they did, or I get the feeling and so much of what they did was just sort of, you know, visceral. And there's almost this idea in hindsight that they were a bunch of, you know, dumb guys from <laughs> from Queens making this music. But it sounds like, you know, your interaction with them is that it was more, I don't want to say calculated, but maybe more thoughtful. Performance art. Yeah. But that they were they were very aware of what they were doing. You see, I don't know this from interviewing them. And like I said, I remember hanging out with them, but it was sort of superficial. Again, I'm sure it's, you know, I should have engaged them more deeply. We probably, I don't know, it was probably, probably all. They were very kind to me, you know, and very generous and invited me around and stuff. But I didn't really get to know them. All this is what I've pieced together later. I enjoyed them. I suppose a lot of my thinking at that time was very reggae and jazz oriented. And I, I maybe didn't appreciate yeah. them the way I did later, artistically, as I grew more to appreciate them. But I do see them as an art piece. In order for some of these bands to have been political, they were sort of, you know, grasping at something or addressing something a little bit larger and more abstract in the world or something that was a few decades removed mm -hmm. versus women in punk were dealing with very immediate issues that impacted their, their lives and their bodies. Yeah, well, I think it's simply the fact that they were doing anything was revolutionary. Yeah. You know, whatever political stance they had to it. One last word on the Ramones as we're talking about them now, I'm thinking. They were sort of like Gilbert and George. Very, very legendary performance artists who are now iconic. They're from, they're from Europe. Well studied performance yeah. pieces. To me, they evolved a shtick. Isn't Pussy Riot like that in a sense? They're certainly performative. They have aesthetic. I think they have they're costumes. less contrived. Yeah, they mm. perform, but I think they're less contrived and artful. Whereas the Ramones made themselves seem as if they were brothers. They all took, yeah. well, you know, Pussy Riot are all trying to be anonymous, in fact. But musically, they're just more straightforward punk, I think, political punk. Whereas I think the Ramones, they just seem something more like a shtick about them. Whereas Pussy Riot, they definitely are art. They were part of many art groups and many art collectives, so they are artistic. So maybe there's more to the connection than I'd realized. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're not anonymous, or at least certain members of them are not anonymous in the way they were. I, yeah, I was under the impression that they were anonymous because they kind of had to be, right? In, yeah. In order to be that sort of to overtly political... To be politically And where they were to not, you know, be yeah. constantly thrown in prison, that was a big yeah, part of it. Yeah, because they were, unlike the Ramones... Yeah. They were doing things that were against the law. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you've considered the role that anonymity plays in their identity. Had, uh, well, I think it was a 
good idea yeah. under the circumstances. Well, sure. I mean, in terms of their own personal safety, but you know how that impacts them as as artists and our perception and and their music of not having their faces out there. You know, obviously, mm. like rock well, and roll consumption of their music. Anyway, yeah. they do the best they can possibly mm-hmm. do. I don't think it's affected necessarily by the anonymity. I think that they play as you know, they give it their all. I I don't know whether that's impacted by the anonymity. I don't know where the creative process of actually trying to write a song, maybe, if anything, they feel more free to say things, possibly? I I would imagine so. Although, even if you have your head covered at a certain point, that anonymity does go away. Well, that's uh, that's over now, anyway. I interviewed one of them in the the book, the woman who's sort of the musical director. And she's in another band, too, called What? W-O-T-T. When I interviewed them for the New York Times, I interviewed one of them when, you know, all this confrontation was starting to go down. I managed to get hold of one, but I still don't know her real name. She asked Mm. to be called Bullet. She was the one who was responsible for pulling the clothes together. And the woman I interview in the band, in the book, is the one somewhat-ish, given that it's more collective. She's a bit more the musical director in that, you know, she's the most into Mm -hmm. that aspect arrangement and so on i suspect that a big part of the difficulty in pulling this book together initially was kind of figuring out where the parameters lie you know who you were going to talk to it was it was uh it was an exploration so yeah it's really true brian you know i really thought where would people doing punk punky music and again it doesn't always only have to be loud and fast that spirit is the most important thing. Mm. So I literally did look a little bit in... I was curious about the Indian subcontinent. So oh, I wonder how it's mm. playing out there. I didn't really know. And then I asked some people, like... Even DJ Raker lives around the corner, the, the godmother of uh, Bangra in America. Yeah, we should, we're should. we in a, a pretty heavily indie, Indian area yeah, right now. Yeah, and she lives around the corner. But she, I suppose it's not her musical area, but she didn't know of anyone. I just carried on, you know, researching. Yeah. And I came across this case that really affected me of the group Praagash, meaning light. That was that they were a trio of schoolgirls who made a band and they played like rock guitar over tablers and the little that I heard sounded really good but they had been so silenced there was a fatwa put on them and uh, although they did have people spring to their defense you know in the region in the end the death threats were just too much it was in Mm. Kashmir which is the only heavily Muslim area of India and that was it they were really silenced and I found this bit of footage from a TV interview just the look in the young woman's eyes and the set the slight the slump of her shoulder she turned away from the camera she was just the journalist was pressing her and pressing her and she was more and more uncomfortable and in the end she just sort of muttered the the fatwa and she turned away it would just dagger in my heart time you know that so you just couldn't express the young woman couldn't express herself at all she was putting her whole family at risk she said, I'm going to go back and just focus on my engineering studies. And then I found this other band who are a very active punk band in India, but not in Kashmir. 
They're called the Vinyl Records. And they're totally like one in the eye for this cultural appropriation debate in that they're not at all shy to totally culturally appropriate pop-punk music. It's quite, that's a lengthy debate, you know. They had heard of Pragash and they were aware they were comparatively privileged in a more liberal area. But I wanted to show in the book women punky, slightly rebellious artists, they really are a threat. That's why the system was always so keen to keep them quiet and just cut off the knowledge from so that there was no legacy built. But I think, you know, that's what I'm saying. Hopefully this book will be a contribution to that. Any as they say, young, you know, but it could be older. Any woman who feels that she's having to make absolutely everything up as she goes along, yes, you are slightly reinventing the wheel. There is a wheel somewhere. If you keep looking, yes, there is a wheel, and that wheel will help keep you rolling. So that was, to me, the job of the book. Was there a sense that in order to find contemporary music that's kind of vibrant and political in the mm. same way that you would have to seek it out in places like, like India, that the well, repercussions would be there now? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm being honest. You know, I was, I was like any, like a million times I've done stories of you done, st- or you've done stories. You have an idea and you have to go out and sure. prove it or, or not. I had this gut feeling, like I said, that there was a number of women around the world building on this punk tradition and mm-hmm. that there was really a movement. And it wasn't all dead and gone, so pat, the way so many people like to put it. People have been saying punk is dead since the beginning of the Well, punk. that's because, yeah, that's true. But that's because also, yeah, you can't deny that punk has been commodified. Yeah. You can't deny it. You know, I, I participated and I myself took money, to be honest, but I am a freelancer and if you want to send me some money, I, I have <laughs> quite likely take it. But from the British government, when they decided to honour punk, like, uh, was it two years ago? And mm. I went and spoke at South by Southwest and so on. There's no doubt it was a massive irony because, of course, they was all about, punk was all about not respecting the government and trying to change things, and the government was all about suppressing punk, and yet, you know, uh, here we all were praising it. But at the same time, to me, the point about the punk was the energizing and liberating spirit of it, and the way it was a gateway to doing music for people who didn't have any role models. Like, you remember even I was saying to you, and I came from a musical family. My father had been a musician, and we were all musical, but I'd never seen a woman play on stage before. Mm. I mean, I loved Dusty Springfield. Mm -hmm. I loved Sandy Shaw. I loved Scylla Black. And then, of course, you know... Who doesn't love Aretha, say, or Mavis Staples, who Mm -hmm. I got to interview. Hmm. Remember, who did I can't stand the rain? Oh. And Peebles. Yeah. Love and Peebles. So you see what I mean? But you see how that wasn't a sort of band of women. That was, you know, a woman, you know, uh, not always even necessarily doing exactly what she wanted. Likely she didn't write the music in a lot of the cases. She was part of the studio system. Yeah, and you had to please a cultural gatekeeper with often a reductive view. One person who did find her way through that system was Dusty Springfield. I mean, she was just so fantastic that people cut her some slack. But still, there'd never been anything like seeing 
all these women come together. I mean, she kept her sexuality under wraps. She there there were a lot of things she that she still, yeah, that still, she still couldn't do. I mean, yeah, obviously she was fantastic, but there were still compromises. Yeah, filters. Yeah, so definitely, there's just no question. That, except for maybe some somebody will call up now. Sure. you know, maybe some you know lesbian feminist yeah. labels from the West Coast in the seventies. Yeah, whatever, I'm sure whatever the shags were. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure they <laughs> yeah. had much more autonomy. But in the general industry as a whole no and even now it's not like we're sitting here talking about, about a fait accompli like I think it was GQ or some glossy magazine while I was writing the book did a list of the hundred best or hundred most successful DJs and I think there was one woman I think one black man no disrespect to white males such as yourself and my lovely family members and other close friends but you yeah. know what I mean it's been a hegemony hasn't it of the it's patriarchy it's very surprising to hear that about there only being one black man like, given yeah it was hip-hop. tragic <laughs> yeah. was, was it Africa I Bambada was, um, I suppose that was the thinking and the aesthetic of that yeah men's magazine or sort of a glossy men's magazine there was something happening politically that allowed that to happen among these women but also there was just something that we talk about a lot when we talk about punk is you know the, the diy aspect of it so there was access to all of those tools and to start something relatively organically that was a huge part of it because you didn't have to wait for the green light from you know some very big record company label guy again it's not even against men. It's just the sort of person that was that cultural mm-hmm. gatekeeper. I mean, look at Jeff Travis. He's a white male. You couldn't get any more white and male than him. Yet, he appreciated and he sought out women's creativity. Yes. So, he, as a white male, had a huge influence in getting women's music out from the raincoats and Kleenex to many, many more. He actually, they did, they did distribute my laundrette single. So yeah, you, it's, it's, it's not the problem of white males to me. It's the problem of mindset. Mm. However, it's packaging that the hegemony sure. Of a mindset, you see. But you see, what is it even, you know, when they talk about revolutionaries, quote, in quote, revolutionaries, like, do you remember the famous Huey P. Newton mm-hmm. quote? What is the role of a woman in the revolution? Prone. Yeah. Something like that. And the big fights I had, even with a great revolutionary Peter Tosh, you know, very often when it comes to hanging on to your male-controlled territory, guys can get very territorial. And not very, as another male revolutionary put it, not very one love, you know? So it's the attitude. People like to hang on to what they've got, don't they? They don't want to give up power easily. I wonder how much of it, too, is just this idea of, like, we need to fight this one fight at a time. Maybe, but it's not the most effective way of bringing about change. Yeah. Because you need the women. And it's like that fight I had with Peter Tosh that I talk about in the book, who I obviously really admire. He was very close to several women in his life. And he was just saying that men are more valuable, really, than women, he seemed to be saying, because he used this analogy. If we were down on the docks, 
I could pick up a big sack of rice and you couldn't. Well, what's that for an argument? You know, if it's a woman, you might think of something that yeah. just picks up the rice and puts it somewhere sure. without you having to strain like that. You know, it's not the only way to measure strength and value. It's a very reductive way. And if they, if people, those so-called revolutionaries, were thinking like that, it is an argument, Brian. But it's incorrect. When you were making music that first time around, did it feel revolutionary? Yes. I felt completely then that I had been freed by punk. I took it for granted I wouldn't really do music. Obviously, I'm musical, mm-hmm. and I've just completed my first mm-hmm. album with a legendary youth of Killing Joke. The whole idea of getting up and doing music was really beyond my... I had never thought of it. The idea of standing on stage... And making music... I and mean, to be honest, even when I was in The Flying Lizards yeah. and doing the work with John Lydon and so on and blah, 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 I still never thought of getting on stage, actually. It's a wee bit different for me because even though I genuinely am musical, at the same time I was always called in various directions. It's not like I don't enjoy writing, or rather, let's say, it's not like I don't have the same love-hate with writing that sure. all writers do. I feel like, you know, writing is a lifelong commitment for me I expect all being well to write till I drop you know but no I just sort of hadn't thought of it it was such a lonely path you'd have to be massively committed to forging ahead with music and I remember when I stopped doing music as a professional thing in getting into the mid 80s and went into independent television I definitely remember I mean there were various personal factors as well like AF my musical partner she had to attend to family matters due to ill health in France so our duo split up but I remember thinking god there's not much joy in this for a woman artist let me go and explore you know in this industry I was already over 30 I couldn't really see a place for myself when I had other things to do as well you're talking about like an already very difficult industry to break into a difficult thing to sustain fickle, and then these, uh, but then these other issues on and top no of it. no role models at all. I mean, mm. nobody was really doing it except for real folky, Aryan-looking folky people. Yeah. Not to diminish her, Joni Mitchell, she's the goal. I mean, obviously yeah. she's brilliant anyway, but they wanted you to be like Joni Mitchell. Joan Baez. Oh, Joan yeah. Baez. They were sort of folky, soulful, folky. I mean, I just couldn't see a place for myself in the industry, knowing the industry quite well. Plus, I was had other skills that I also enjoyed flexing, you know, and I spent a happy 1980s doing independent television. And I think music is like this as much, if not more, than other other industries in that it's very stuck in its ways as far as, as recreating business. hits. But also, aesthetically, once a label, once the industry finds something that's a hit, it wants to reproduce it ad infinitum. Yeah, but now, you see, what I was noticing while writing this book is... I'm not the only one. Loads of women. For a start, punk opened the door for that too. If you look at people like Vice, Versa and Poison Girls, she only started in her early 40s. Mm. And yet because of that tabula rasa open door policy, yeah, that wasn't really a problem for her in punk. Punk created a space for her because you didn't have to be a teenage folky. Suddenly you could be another sort of voice. So that was really, really huge. So, and now what I found when doing the book is even people from the group Malaria in Germany, they have an exclamation Mm -hmm. point, so I always pronounce them like that. You know, they're coming back and doing new albums. You know, many, many people, even Goldie from Goldie and the Gingerbreads, I only just heard she's done a new album. It definitely, there. I feel there has been a shift in the zeitgeist. Yeah. And that people are missing the female voices, and they're even 
you know, even missing the voices of their youth. I went to the, one of the Bikini Kill shows. There out you in go. Brooklyn. That's the great example of Bikini Kill. And it, they sold out five two nights. Minutes. In, yeah, five yeah. nights in, in two seconds. So obviously something is, is happening. Were you seeing that as you were writing this yes. book? Yes. You were seeing the sort of And beginnings. I mentioned it in the epilogue, yeah. yeah. And then after I'd done the book, in fact, just as I was finishing editing the book, Youth, the producer, asked if I'd be interested to do an album as a project. And I was like, ooh. It's because I had been asked to play in Berlin and I added up all the time on my resolutionary reissue, realized I didn't have enough material. Youth offered to do a couple of songs with me. So I'd have a couple of songs to fill an hour. And then it led to this album, which I think you'll enjoy. I'm not sure when it's coming out, but when I go to England now, we're going to master it. Yeah. With the book specifically, because of everything that was happening, both in broader context and then in your own life, especially with, it sounds like that album being released of your re-release of your older stuff was a big part of this as well did you feel a sense of pressure in writing this book that you wouldn't have had otherwise and that there was so much more focus on you and your stuff that this was going to be a pretty important book for you in your career well honestly it's not that easy to write a book is it i can't imagine no, it is. it's torture you have to really want to do it it's terrible pressure whether i'd had the uh it's a lot of pressure whether i no, i don't even know I mean, I was glad that the CD or album led to me being asked to do this book, but I don't see how one could have felt more pressure than one felt. <laughs> I don't think having the music out added to the pressure. Yeah. It's top pressure anyway. Sure. Exodus was huge pressure. Each of them took me like two and a half years one way or the other, even though this is smaller than my book of Exodus. Mm. It was a lot of research, a lot of finding the people. Was there something that happened in the writing of the book? Was there something that sort of clicked where you knew that you you knew you were on the right track and you knew you were doing the yes, right thing? Yes, definitely. As it went on, and I was assembling, in a sense, you know, my thesis, as it were, what I felt was yeah. true, and backing it up, and then having all these fascinating talks to all these women artists and. What I was hoping was to find a babel of voices, really, a sort of um, all sorts of intentions and aesthetics and yeah. points of view, you know, in a very rich mix of female creativity. And that is what I found. I mean, even Jia Wang, the Chinese artist from Hang in the Box, we think women punks are controversial, but she's even more controversial because she's anti-abortion. I was so amazed because I now realized I had become, you know, sort of placid. I expected that everybody, but it's true that punk mm -hmm. is mainly a sort of liberal and progressive movement. So, yeah, so I was shocked. So I found shocking things while doing the book. And uh, then, you know, I'm a, I came back to Fertile Miseria because as I was starting to say, you know, the activist aspect of punk had always engaged me beyond, you know, the nice sound, as it were, or ugly nice sound. And they are so, they're so exemplary. They're really on the front line of Colombia and they have no inhibitions they totally understand what fell used to describe using music as a weapon i could i might even read you a little bit of <laughs> what they say you know chuck a bit of a what is it you know we talked through email and then in the end with the help of xenia the russian journalist i really sort of got to talk to them more directly a lot still via email but anyway this is what they wrote when they I asked them to be in the book and they actually went and had a meeting about whether to do it. And so then they wrote me as a collective. Why the hesitation? 
on their part. Because they're political, and that's how it, you know, you always have to go and work, function as a group, don't yeah. you? If you remember, okay. you cast your mind back. Like, sure. It was, it was less about your moves and more just making sure everybody was on board. With yes, it. And, yeah. and speak collectively. Yeah. So they say, Fertile Miseria, meaning fertile misery, has been around since 1990, screaming with pain, anger, at the injustice that's seen in our country. In addition to the drug war we had to live through with Pablo Escobar, this increased scourge of guerrilla and paramilitary factions caused the group of displaced people in our country to grow every day. At their gigs, they collect food and clothes and things to give to people in need. So I was touched by the way they understood... You know, not their own indigenous, beautiful, beautiful musics of which Colombia has so much, like the cumbia and the vallenato. When it came to speaking directly to the crisis situation in which they were continually finding themselves, they turned to punk. Mm -hmm. And it's two sisters at the heart of it, the Castro sisters. Piedad and Vicky. One of their their bass player, Juan Carlos Londoño, he was actually briefly a disappeared person. He was hmm. kidnapped. Punk was their chosen medium of expression, and they've been doing it all this time since 1990, and they're combining the activism with the culture, and, you know, literally they're, as it were, keeping the faith. I did just love them, and they're song visiones de la muerte visions of death which has a video that you can see on youtube very affecting very affecting yeah so it's to totally when i was able to have that dialogue with them i found them through their music i was so touched i mean i was so i was riveted it was everything that i sort of had felt was happening they did embody it and then when i only when i talked to them more beyond the collective i realized yeah they're actually sisters. So like I say in the book, sisterhood really saves. And even if they're not genetic, you can find, you know, I'm lucky to have a couple in my life. I'm very lucky. I have my actual sisters, numbering two. And then I've got another couple of posse girlfriends who stick by me. And you do need that. They're the ones in this conversation specifically that you've come back to the most. And obviously they are going to play an important role in the book to be the kind of the end of it, to be the conclusion of the, of the thesis. What, 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 it, what is it about them? Why was it clear that they were the place where the book needed to close? Well, just as I said, they were on the front line yeah. and they were doing it all the way. And they chose punk as their music of choice. They had a, a number of musics they could have done of yeah. local musics. But no, they were they like people like Wendy O. Williams and the Plasmatics. Okay. So performance artists in a sense, at least she was, certainly. Yeah. Do you feel like they embody a, a way forward in in, in a way they embody a, a, to me a, a rigorous truth and an integrity yeah of combining culture making culture making music and making change I, I guess I ask from the standpoint of you know the idea of this almost being a handbook for somebody starting out that, that you want the the end of the book to be this kind of this last bit that sort of pushes people off into the world that gives them the, the momentum if they're sort of starting their bands and trying to figure out how to do it I hope it gives them the encouragement and the you know don't be afraid seize it live it do it because music is not a central arguably as it was when I started out, when it was the main medium that held youth together. But I think music still has a particular potency. And I did want the book to be an encouragement. So encouragement I didn't really have until mm -hmm. punk gave me a crew 
of other women. How much of a role has this book and researching this book, talking to all the women that you spoke to for this book, how much of a role has it played in your continued music making? Good question. Yet another good question. I mean, it's just building on that foundation that I got from the time. Had I not come, even though, you know, when I was in the Flying Lizards, it was me and all guys, but the encouragement that I had to do it was also from having sung a lot with people like Nena and Ari from the Slits before when I was doing reggae backup singing and just knowing I mean again had it been my sole skill maybe I would have stuck with it differently as it was it hadn't really crossed my mind to do it you see until the other girls came along I'd done it at home and even when I stopped doing music then right as it were stopped in quotes I always said to myself you know nothing can stop you actually being a musician because I was like oh you know but uh, nothing can stop you being a musician I can always sing and just sing with my friends I was, nothing can stop me doing music I think there's a lesson here too that you know if somebody can do it if somebody can make music and have a fatwa out on their life then something like something as relatively trivial as age shouldn't get in your way you know all these all these reasons you've been putting it off all these excuses you've been making don't amount to a lot when you look at people who like literally are putting their lives on the line to make yes, music. Yes, yes. I don't at all think Pragash were wrong to stop when they had that factor on them because it yeah. was extremely real. But it shows it shows the significance of of young women making music. There you go. That was Vivian Goldman, her latest Revenge of the Sheepunks, a feminist history from Polystyrene to Pussy Riot is out now on University of Texas Press. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. Always a pleasure catching up. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify and YouTube now. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rlcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information. And that's about all we got for now. So stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 